0: How many of you have considered or maybe are considering specializing, but you're put off by the journey of actually becoming a specialist? Because let's be very clear, choosing that path usually involves putting pretty much everything else on hold for a good 5-odd years. Other interests, hobbies, leisure, but also relationships, romance, kids. But that's just the way it is, isn't it? But does it have to be? What if there was another way? What if internships and residencies were structured in a way that would allow you to live a relatively normal life with time for other stuff that allows, let's call it, balance? Would we lower the bar for becoming a specialist too much? Would we produce specialists who were worse at their job? Dr. Anna Dengate is a medicine specialist and she is convinced that there could be another way. And in this conversation, she helps us to explore these questions. Anna's career journey has been a bit different to the norm. After graduating from Sydney Uni in 2008, her path meandered its way through several roles. Intern, wife, resident, PhD candidate, unfinished, general practitioner for a while, a member of the Australian New Zealand College of Veterinary Surgeons, small animal medicine, mother of one, founding partner in a specialist hospital, fellow of the Australian New Zealand College of Veterinary Surgeons in small animal medicine, mum of two, and resident supervisor. Most recently, Anna has been providing specialist medical and ultrasound services to local general practices through her business, The Vets North, and she provides ongoing learning opportunities to a wider group of vets with teaching in ultrasound and online medical round sessions. She's also working on some incredibly cool stuff around social impact through a social impact fellowship, as well as working on ways to integrate people with disabilities and from traumatic backgrounds into the animal care industry to increase diversity and inclusion in our profession. What did we say at the beginning of this intro? What if there was another way, right? By the way, if any of this gets you excited, let us know and we'll put you in touch with Anna or check out what she's doing at vetsnorth.com.au. In this conversation, we chat about what these different ways could look like, how Anna made it happen for herself, and we take detours into how and why the predictors of success and longevity in a career don't necessarily match up with what we select for and train for. We talk about the importance of getting to know yourself and creating a career path that fills your bucket, finding a balance between pushing yourself enough for growth without reaching breaking point, and much, much more. Before we jump in, we're doing a bunch of fun live sessions over the coming weeks and months. We're talking live podcasts, a session on AI in the vet profession, and a conference in the snow. I'll tell you all about these at about the 20-minute mark of this episode, or you can just check out all the links in the show descriptions. Okay back to Dr. Anna Dengate. Hey, welcome to the Vetveld Podcast.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You were recommended by a listener. that we said, you're a bit of a legend and a bit of an inspiration. So I had to get in touch and figure out why are you a legend and an inspiration? And I look forward to finding out why.
1: Oh gosh, I hope I live up to it. <laughs>
0: Do you know why? i I'm got that. a suspicion.
1: Sure, I did. I as soon as you approached me, obviously I asked who said that. And I think there's there's quite there's not very many female specialists with family, and I think the person who recommended me is sort of thinking about going down the specialty route and is not wanting to compromise on family side of things. And I think that's probably why I've inspired her and certainly my career is not taken the average path from graduation so hopefully people can see that there's options outside of of the usual pathway and may, maybe that's it we'll see yeah well let's
0: jump straight into that thing we raised the point of specifically specializing I mean, it's hard enough being a, a full-time veterinarian with a family but then specializing as well with young kids we talked before you've got a six-year-old and an eight-year-old where does that fit in with your career journey like Talk us through qualification, specialisation, reproducing at
1: <laughs> <It wasn't laughs>
0: the same time. Oh,
1: gosh. Yeah, it's definitely not easy, but it's always been a priority and it was not negotiable for me, having kids. I did vet science as a postgrad. So I did medical science first and then transferred into vet. So I graduated at 25. Mm-hmm. Then I'd been nursing in a specialist clinic throughout my veterinary degree, and went straight into an internship from there, then decided not to specialize and went into general practice. And I was really lucky, I, I think lucky, in the, a specialist clinic that I'd sort of worked with one of the people from the clinic previously uh, during my internship and we'd worked really well together. And they had a resident who started and then dropped out of the program three months in, right as both the other resident and the supervising specialist were going on holidays together. So they had lost a resident and the only other two people within the medicine department were going on leave together and they knew I had a bit of background. So I think they sort of offered me a residency and said, what are your terms? And I said, I'll do four days a week and I won't do weekends. And they said, yep, sure, no worries. Is that
0: not the the norm? Is that very um, unusual to have those sort of terms?
1: Very unusual in those days. So we're probably talking, this was 2008-ish and the conditions typically with private practice residencies In Sydney, there was like one come up every two or three years, and they were five days a week, and they were sixteen-hour days, and you worked every other weekend, and you were on call all the time. So they were pretty atrocious conditions, which wasn't really it just wasn't really doable in my life. So I think I was just really lucky that they really needed someone with a little bit of background and enough to get to work independently off the bat, and so ended up ticking the residency box, working with them, and they were they were a really nice group of people. Um, So glad I did it. But then I actually finished my residency and then went two days specialist and two days GP because I'd never really had that GP experience right. and did some emergency work too.
0: Right, that's interesting. I'd love to dig into your decision making. So let's backtrack. So internship was the internship with a view of specialising, or was it just looking around and deciding what you I, to do? Like, did you yeah. did you set out on your internship thinking mm, I think I might want to specialise?
1: Yes. I, th- I would say yes absolutely I had some really good role models in the clinic that I started my internship in and then as it, my internship unfolded the clinic sort of broke down and I lost a lot of my kind of the people who were really mentors to me um, moved on, either out of practicing as a specialist or moved into kind of academia so I was very motivated to specialize but only because I had those examples and I wasn't really willing to do it do a kind of a program where I really had to compromise my support network and my life outside of the veterinary industry, unless I had really good mentors that had lifestyle and things that I also admired. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, totally. I like it a lot. And -hmm. at this stage were was family just a thought or was it actually on the, was it actually imminent at this stage?
1: So I was probably 27 and got married in my internship year and wanted to have kids in the next sort of three years or so. So I guess sort of imminent and certainly within the time frame that I would have been in my sort of active training program or preparing for exams, it was always going to be in that time frame.
0: Okay, cool. So you went internship, no, I don't want to specialise because the the opportunity to have a balanced residency and have a family doesn't exist. And then that opportunity actually kind of you came across the opportunity that said actually no, you can, you can do both of those in this particular residence. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then did yeah. did you have kids during your residency or after?
1: I had my first Joe, I think like six months after I finished my residency. So I'd gone into private into general practice, was doing two days general practice and two days specialist when I had him.
0: Yeah. Were you still studying at that stage? I'm always I always confused. All residency? Always,
1: <laughs> always <laughs> studying. All. Yeah. So I finished uh The way that sort of the private practice residencies worked at that point, you didn't really do your research during your residency because you didn't have time and you didn't really study during your residency because you were flat out meeting your clinical requirements, caseload and things. So I sort of did my research articles, like um, published my papers and things. You had to publish three papers at that point in the two years after my residency and still studying throughout that time, getting ready for exams and then went into had joe when i sat my membership exams i took maternity leave and study leave at the same time and then sat my fellowships the year after that
0: so you were studying memberships and then fellowships with that what one one to two year old baby on board yeah (laughs) (laughs) i like your voice yeah good times
1: (laughs) (laughs) do you know what though and i thought about this so much because people sort of say oh how did you do it quite often and this was but having a baby is one of the only legitimate times where you get to the opportunity to step back and really prioritize, think about whether you're doing things the right way and whether you feel like you've got enough balance. And I think it was a bit of a gift at that point to have a legitimate reason to be home in the mornings and evenings because I was studying and particularly when kids are young and my Joe had some health problems when he was little um, with increased intracranial pressure and things. And I, could, I just couldn't work the length of days that were required in a specialist clinic mm. and, you know, not see him morning or evening or like be able to at least check on him, which just was absolutely, yeah, completely not negotiable for me. So I would have had to, I guess quit, but because I was studying, I had a legitimate reason to stay home. So it was, it was a good opportunity and it worked out well in the end. Yeah.
0: I, I see what you mean. I, I'm still fascinated with actually studying with a baby in the house. With a, <laughs> a, 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 And that's, I mean, that's a high need. they they're not, and low attention like how, how did you physically for anybody who might end up in this situation do you have any tips or advice on how do you manage raising um, a young baby with hours and hours of study
1: don't do it i can't mind. even sit Do
0: you? most people can't even sit down for five minutes to watch tv with a baby and no. the never my study
1: <laughs> yeah so i oh like there were so many tools that i used and i you know this sort of i've got so many recordings of Edinger chapters of me just reading it out at night and then I used to walk for hours and hours listening to it. But really, like I think the key is don't do it on your own. So if you're going to go down this pathway, you need to have a social support network, an emotional support network, which is going to get you through it because you can't do it without them. And I'm lucky in that my husband's really supportive, worked full time as well, but weekends and things like I'd sort of start studying in the evening or start studying at 5am and then we'd sort of do shifts and he'd take the Joe out for the whole day in the pram, just walk laps, so that I had the day to myself at home with my books and stuff. Both sets of parents, my husband's parents and my parents, are pretty involved in the kids' lives and would take them for two hours at a time here and there, or full days once it got to crunch time and stuff. It's yeah. there's no way you could do it on your own.
0: jeez it's still. And what about sleep? Do you have a good sleeper at least? Because that's the um, other thing. If I I think of the amount of sleep that you have to survive on, and then trying to actually use your brain with something useful. <laughs>
1: yeah so there were again sort of valuable lessons you learn in the process of doing tough things so because of my son's neurological problem so he was born with a fused skull it's called craniosynostosis and he had to have a skull reconstruction when he was just turned one and so the first time i sat my fellowship exams he was waking up he just had this surgery four months before and was waking up every you remember sleep cycles from when your kids were little I do yeah Every forty-five minutes, I set a clock by it, and I sat these exams. And I was so disappointed that I failed, but I was not surprised at all. My brain was not functional at all during that period. I had to kind of look back on, I go, "What were you even thinking, sitting?" But it was—I was prepared to fail. It was a good opportunity to stay home and study, and at least get my study notes in order. And then the following year, I passed. It all worked out. It's <laughs> just a practice. Now.
0: Yeah, breakfast and I like I that attitude of I was prepared to fail. Yeah. And still the disappointment.
1: Oh, uh, Look, it's disappointing, yeah. I mean, and it's costly. You know, it's such a luxury to indulgent, I think is the word, to take three months of unpaid leave to study, which is how it just had the conditions that it was back then. And I think there's organisations now doing it a lot better. But three months unpaid study leave, sitting around sort of learning for three months and paying $5,000 for the opportunity to sit an exam, Two years running, and kind of anticipating that's going to be the case. But again, having kids is a nice opportunity to step back, reassess your budget. Most people are budgeted to live on one income for a while when they have kids, so it was the best opportunity.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, a key thing in your story sounds like a the well, mainly the the place where you did your residency through them being acceptable, and you you said a couple of times that it was non negotiable, non negotiable the way that you had to do it. And you said it wasn't the norm in those days for places to have residencies and then to be that supportive with taking time off and everything. Has that changed? Is it becoming more, if somebody's listening to this going, all right, I'd love to find a place like this. Is it more common for it to be structured like that now?
1: Not really. No, not at all. No. There's only one place in Sydney that I know of that will take part-time interns. Most of them are at least four days a week plus weekends. And if you think about the time frame now that VET's postgrad in Sydney, a lot of people, even if they go straight from uni into an internship, they're not finishing the internship till they're 25. And then if they want to specialize, it's minimum three years active training. And then usually a year of kind of publishing and studying. So that takes you up to what, 29, 30, best case scenario. And you probably haven't invested a lot in your relationships and things to that point because you've been so focused on career. So I think where there's definitely a barrier to specialising if you want to have a family, and as a female, you look down the barrel of that timeline and just go, yeah, it's not going to work. I'm not going to bother. So I don't think I think we're probably under under detecting how much of a barrier it is.
0: So is it worth it? Has it been worth it for you? Oh, specializing so not, not having kids. Not having, having kids. We can always debate about it whether it's worth it or not.
1: <laughs> I like the not having kids. Let's just clarify that. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. But to only at a certain cost. So like I said, there were advantages to me taking that time off. I was going to be on maternity leave anyway, so might as well use that study leave, sort of unpaid leave to get somewhere. And it's opened up so many doors for me. I mean, when I was invited to be a partner of this new specialist hospital seven years ago, and I don't think I would have had that opportunity if I hadn't taken those risks and put in that effort, I've got opportunities that other people wouldn't have within their career that provide me with the flexibility I want to sit with my family boundaries Um, in that my current role going into clinics and doing medical consulting, GP clinics, doing medical consulting and ultrasounding, I can set an online schedule, people can book online and I can open up as much or as as little of the day as I want Mm. and I would never have that opportunity if I didn't have that special word behind my name.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. But I wouldn't have sat again. I wouldn't have done the fellowship exams a third time if I'd failed.
0: Oh, okay. The third time. I, thought, I see what you mean. Yeah. I, I thought you meant – well, we'll get back to this question. Let's put it on ice for Yeah, yeah those barriers are interesting. The, the, the barriers to entry when it starts right. with vet school, right? There's, there's barriers to becoming a vet. And mm-hmm. then so much higher barriers to, between where you are and becoming a specialist. What do you think of those? Are they necessary? Is that just the way it is, or is it is the potential there for it to change? Yeah, what, what are your thoughts about?
1: It? So I'm shaking my head. Sorry, I keep forgetting you can't see me. <laughs> um, <laughs> I I think it's just set up so wrong. I think firstly, I think we're training specialists that can't relate to the majority of clients that they're seeing because we're selecting for people that aren't prioritizing family and whilst. Well, it's not for everybody. It is actually for most people and and when you just look at the, the science or the stats behind mm. it, most people mm. will have kids, which makes them I think one of the really important skills as a specialist is developing trust between your client and yourself and if the client can't relate to you at all, then that's going to be, it's, of course, you can be an amazing specialist and not have kids, but if you've had that experience, you can relate to the client better, I think. The most amazing vets I've worked with without a doubt, are the, those that have really good work-life balance and the ones that have interesting stories and lives outside of VET that, again, make them more relatable to clients. Um, and I think if we're, we're pulling people out of their social support networks and often making them relocate because they're passionate about specialising, they move to the States or they move to Europe or they move to a different city in Australia because that's where the opportunities are, we take them out of their comfort zone, away from their support networks and their resilience drops as a result of that and then putting them through a really, really tough program and they come out the other end a bit broken and worse for it. Why can't we do this part-time? Like I had no time to study, no time to write out my research paper when I was actually in my residency and we know that the duration, so if you finish your residency, the longer it takes you to sit your exams, the more likely you are to fail. So we need people sitting exams as close to the end of their residency as possible to improve the success rate of the fellowship program. And yet we've got this structure that doesn't let people do those things concurrently. But if we had people in clinic part-time and working flexible hours on research and study the rest of the week, then they're going to be better specialists by the end of it. They're going to pass with a higher pass rate of exams and they're going to have more balance and be more relatable for clients and peers and more resilient because it's not easy. So many advantages to part-time programs, I think.
0: Should we say part-time program? Do you mean specifically the residency program?
1: Resi- yeah, residency program for sure. Yeah, but any internship or training program, any opportunity for vets to further their knowledge because we're, we're hungry people, right? Like anyone that's willing to work that hard through vet school is probably got a bit of a thirst for knowledge and then you graduate and everybody stops teaching you. But if we've got internship programs that could be two days a week and people could still maybe do general practice two days a week but feel like they're advancing their knowledge in a certain field two days a week, the veterinary industry would be better for it, the patients would be better for it, surely.
0: So would you have a how do you envisage it? A, a longer residency program, but integrated into that some of the research and the other stuff that you talk about. Like your yeah. your perfect residency program instead of three years full time, what you do a five year part time balanced one that doesn't break you and, mm-hmm. and and you integrate all of that into that program?
1: I think so. Yeah. With a view to the exams, sitting the exams at the end, exactly at the end of the program and having all of the requirements of the program fulfilled before you finish, but having that active clinical training right up until the exam time.
0: It makes a lot of sense. So why isn't it like that? Do you know? is, Is there a reason? Is it just, this is the way it's done?
1: Oh, I think, unfortunately, I think it's the people that are running the programs, people that don't prioritize balance and family.
0: Okay. There so it's an all in. So it's sort of like, yeah. well, if you're not all in with us, if you're not like us and all in on this thing, then this is probably not for you and go th- do yeah, something I think else. Awesome. Isn't that sort of the, the culture?
1: Yeah. And I think that's the culture in a lot of specialist clinics, particularly in internal medicine. I don't know if it's a sort of personality type or like the, the people that are providing the training are sort of training people to be like that, but the culture of very long days everywhere I've worked and most people I've spoken to people staying back, perfecting their records and, Making sure the cases are tied in a bow, it's just not—it's not how how cases work, really, is it?
0: Yeah, I really like this. This is really insightful because um, what you described then is probably why I didn't do it. Wow, Because I'm, I'm like everybody, exactly as you say. You're a curious person. You like science. You want to be better at what you do, and I often just well, right at the beginning, just looked at the specialist journey and just went, no, nah, that mountain's mm-hmm. too high. Too high mountain balance exactly as you say. I have a wife that I like. <laughs> I'd like to still have her three years from now and I want to do a bit of travel and so it was just like no. And in retrospect like there's some regrets. You go, well maybe I should have done it mm. exactly as you say, the career opportunities that could have happened. It's interesting though, because we do that all the way from vet school, that culture of self sacrifice. I, I like that these mm. days we're talking about well being and taking care of yourself and setting boundaries. But then we go back to vet school, and I don't know if it's changed now, but certainly in my day, that was not what was taught, and that was not what was modeled at all. It was, we were modeled, here you are, you're going to suffer, and we're going to prepare you to suffer because in your career, the expectation will be that you should still be self-sacrificial and still be able to give, 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 and just keep doing that. And then we're surprised that people say, well, I'm done with this. Quick break for a bit of housekeeping to tell you about some fun things we're doing over the next couple of weeks and months. First thing, on the 31st of May, that's next week, Wednesday, if you are listening to this soon after we release it, we are doing a live and in-person podcast in Adelaide. The team from Vedi, those are the guys who figured out a way to tie your patient data, including lab testing, to your patient's existing microchip. They've booked us an awesome pub venue in the heart of the city, and we, that's myself and Gerardo, are sitting down with the phenomenal, no bullshit, super coach Alison Lambert from the United Kingdom to pick at the loose threads of this profession and see where it leads. And we'd love you to join us if you are in Adelaide to ask your questions and contribute to the conversation. It's a free event, but spots are limited, so click on the link in the show description to register your spot. We're doing prizes for best questions and comments, so bring your loudmouth comments and your heckles with you, please. Gerardo loves being heckled. We're also broadcasting this live, so if you can't be in Adelaide, register on the Join Online link that we'll put in the show description as well. Then the very next day on June the 1st, we're doing the official launch of our VetVault network with a live online event where we'll be talking about AI and the veterinary profession. We'll be speaking to Ronsley Vaz, whose bio is much too long and varied to read here, but it includes a PhD in software engineering and immersing himself completely in everything AI for the past year. It's a morning session with a 9.30 Australia Eastern States time kickoff, so if you can take a break from consults or if it happens to be a rough day, we'd love you to join us. Or if you're in the U.S., it should be in your evening, I think. The link, again, will be in the show description. And then finally, the Vets on Tour snow conference in Wanaka, New Zealand, from 14th to 18th August. We'll be there to do our clinical podcast thing with the presenters, which makes it into a very interactive event. The theme for the conference is palliative care and oncology which I'm personally very excited to get to know more about. There's still a few spots available, so book that last-minute leave, polish your snow gear, and come and join us for what is well-known to be one of the most fun CPD events that you can do. Okay, I hope to bump into at, at least one of these things. But for now, let's get back to Anna.
1: I love this discussion. Do you know Adam Grant? Yeah. Yes. So Adam Grant has done a lot of research on these sort of personality types: givers, takers, and matches. Graham? Do you have you, do you know that that research he's no. done? No. no okay. So it. he's classified people into three categories: the givers, who tend to give a lot of themselves regardless of what they're getting back; matches, who tend to give whatever they're given. So if a person's really generous with them, they'll be really generous back. But if a person's really selfish and takes from them, then they're going to only match that contribution, and okay takers, which is sort of self-explanatory, right? And when you think about people in your life, you think, oh, I know that person. So who do you think of those three is the most successful?
0: Most successful? Yeah. In terms of uh, career success and financial success?
1: Yes. So career success in terms, yeah, I think it is based on financial.
0: It's financial and I want to say maybe the takers. Maybe people are happy to abuse other people.
1: Yes, unfortunately, yes. But half of the givers were as successful as the takers and the other half of the givers were the least successful of all three groups. So the givers were split almost in half at the very top and the very bottom of this study. And the the difference, what differentiates a successful giver from an unsuccessful giver is their boundaries. If they set clear boundaries and don't push them, they're going to be as successful as a taker but much better liked
0: so the, so the lack of success in the, the non-successful group is not from not doing enough. It is from basically burning out. I don't like to use that word these yeah, days, it's, but it, it's, it's basically I, I can't give anymore and I can't succeed if I'm a wasted shell of a person.
1: Yeah. So I they, they've given all of themselves and they've kept nothing that sustains and allows them to keep on giving. So if you yeah, wow. set boundaries and keep those social relationships intact and – support yourself in other ways you've got more to give you filled your bucket back up
0: and how do we do that in a, how do we do you that? change a well, profession
1: <laughs> yeah, no I don't think so and I think I get so much out as a veterinary profession but I you know I've just turned 40 and I feel like oh, I've, I know myself really well and I think when I started my career I didn't but I know what fills me up now and what exhausts me. And I'm, I'm a people person. I really like the people of the veterinary industry and I get a lot out of helping them. So I do a lot of teaching and consulting with vets rather than with clients now and directly consulting with animals. But that completely fills my bucket and, and allows me to be a giver without feeling like I'm compromising or emptying my bucket. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So what did it look like for you before you learned? To, to know yourself, for you got to know yourself.
1: Um, so I think I've always been pretty good with boundaries, like setting those sort of residency boundaries and things. But there's definitely been times where I've dropped the ball big time at home and there's been fortunately other people there to pick up the pieces and I've gone, oh, I'm going to have to step up and make sure that, particularly my husband, who's often the piece picker-upper, who uh, makes sure I, sort of, I guess, he gets an opportunity in his career now and I support him through that. I take a step back. And it's his turn or he's going on a surfing trip next week because the last seven years of sort of me being involved in this business has been quite intense and I'm just in the process of stepping back from that. So it's his turn. Yeah, I guess there's been times where I've pushed those boundaries too far and it's compromised other areas of my life, but I've had to be kind of mindful of that, conscious of that and pull myself back a little bit and make sure that I'm returning the favor.
0: So here's a question. Now, you've gone through the hard times, you've pushed those boundaries, and extended yourself and things were hard. And now you're, you are at a place where you can, or well, you're starting to reap dividends of the effort you put in. Is it not an unrealistic expectation to go well, I can have strong boundaries from right from the moment I graduate, and I can have a balanced life and have all these great things without ever putting in that extra. I mean, is is that and, and, and from what you describe, it's maybe too high a, a filtration process, but is it not necessary to some degree to say, well, the payoff, if you want to get to that next level? Yeah, you've got to go through the zip code and talks about the dip, I've mentioned it on every. you you got to go through the dip to get through the other side. And then once you get there, well, then you can reap the reward.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. So I'm, I don't think you're growing unless you're feeling challenged. And if it's not hard, it's probably not beneficial for you. So, I mean, there's times where it's good to coast and that's what you need, but it's probably, you know, professionally if you're coasting, it's probably because you've just graduated from uni and you're trying to establish some financial security and you're trying to find a home for the first time and you're trying to reestablish some social connections you might have missed out on or you might have moved. You know, there's, there's times where it's appropriate to coast in your career for sure but i think if you're in a phase where you're quite stable outside of your career then i i do agree that you should be pushing yourself but knowing what your boundaries are and what keeps you well and keeping those things in place in, and not negotiating on them
0: like that a lot because i um, some people who i'm married to may accuse me sometimes of being lazy because i <laughs> i like my comfort zone yeah. <laughs> um, I don't say avoid hard work, but I I don't want to make life too hard for myself. And and I'm a big proponent of not having that whole attitude of, well, we suffered, so you're going to have to suffer. So for the new grad vets and all of that. But then I do sometimes worry that if, if it's too easy, like can we make it too soft and too easy or can the expectations be too high from people coming into the profession or early in the profession to say, well, we have all these conversations about wellness and balance and... Supportive workplaces. At what point, I don't know, I don't know, I'm, I'm wary of saying, even saying this, at what yeah. point is it, is it too much? At what point do we go, well, it's, it's people's expectations of what they're going to get coming straight out the door in terms of work life balance, in terms of earnings and all of that are too high mm-hmm. and to their detriment in the long term potential? Ooh. I, I, I like, it's but I like you sort of gave the answer to say, no, it has to be a little bit hard sometimes. But with yeah. values, I think, and I think that's where we fall down sometimes as we, in the past, it's been no values. Yeah, it's hard and it's going to keep being hard and it's hard until you, I don't know, until you learn how to live with it or until you leave.
1: Yeah. I think that's such a hard question because I do think that the veterinary industry needed a big shift for sure. Yeah. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. It needed to it a kick up the arse.
0: That's, that's why I started a podcast. I, I was miserable being a yes. bit. I would have left if I had another opportunity.
1: Yeah. And you say that you're you know not a big fan of hard work, but you're doing something quite innovative and different, mm-hmm. which probably requires a fair bit of research. And whilst it might be suited to your strengths and not particularly challenging for you, it's still hard, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I tease. I'm not, yeah. I'm not lazy.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> I didn't think so. Yeah, I've mm-hmm. spoken to the new grads that, you know, you just see to them and you go, I should not cut out for this. You're never going to make it. But yeah. I think there's roles for those kids. Kids. God, I just got old just then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the new grads, because I go into about probably 35 GP clinics and within that spectrum there is a job for every new grad that I speak to. And there's some clinics that I don't know how they make any money. But they do four consults a day and they sit around studying and they have lunch all together, and it's like it's so peaceful and lovely yeah. and that's that's just how they run. and there's new grads that would thrive in that environment, and then there's new grads that are bored out of their head in that environment, and I feel like picking them up and swapping them and putting them in better environments. but because we're such small businesses and these kids don't know what they're getting into, they take the job that they're offered and they they don't know what their strengths are. They don't know if they're great consultants. They don't know if they want to be surgical vets. They end up in the wrong environment and then going, well, the veterinary industry is not for me. But there's so many options.
0: How does one get to know oneself? How did you get to know yourself?
1: Oof, oof. <laughs> I made lots of mistakes.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: That's probably not far off it. I just try things sometimes without necessarily thinking them through and realise that it didn't work for me. And so as an example... I specialised not really being sure if I wanted to be a GP. I, I actually was leaning much more towards GP and fell into a default path that felt like a good opportunity. And I learned that I medicine is definitely my niche. It really just makes sense in my brain and it sits well and I find it easy to explain, which means that I sort of can work well with vets and clients. But what if I could have been a great surgeon? Who knows? Going back into GP, I... I have actually found out that I pass out in surgery and I'm, <laughs> I'm glad I made that made that decision to try it. But that's sort of, I guess, the way that you learn about yourself is you put yourself in situations that challenge you and then you go, well, that didn't work well or that did work well and maybe I'll go down that path next time rather than trying to go down that path. Don't you reckon?
0: Yeah, I, I, I like that a lot. It is very much a, I mean, I spent a long time thinking about well, what else can I do? What should I do? I know I'm not a full time GP vet, clinical vet. That doesn't fill me. And I like it, but not full time. And mm-hmm. and then I think I over overthunk, overthought. Let's do it for over, <laughs> I overthought it way too much for five years and trying to imagine what else or what else I should do. And I think a lot of us do the mm-hmm. same when it comes to specializing or whether to try something. Should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? Try and think of all the pros and cons and and work it out in your head, but often you don't know until you try. So exactly as you say, do I hate being a vet? I don't know. Maybe it's this job, try another job, try a different mm. job, try a different clinic, try a different, try a specializing, try an internship. And, and if you're not sure, then try it. And if you hate it, then stop doing it. And there you go, less than that. Well, I hate this. I often say to people in every situation, in every, every job and every thing that you do, Look for the lessons and often the lesson might just be, oh, I hate this. (laughs) It might be the only thing that you learn, but it's still, it's a valuable lesson.
1: And that's, that's not a failure. That's just getting, you know, I think that's, vets tend to sort of, you know, get to the end of a job and they're so bitter and twisted and they hate everybody and they feel Mm. terrible about themselves because they've been working in an environment they're not suited to. And it's really bad for their self sense of self-worth and self-esteem and it's terrible for their future employment. But actually, if they could just take the emotion out of it and say, actually, I just don't like consulting for 12 hours at a time. It's a lot of words and I don't have that much in the tank. I want to go to a vet clinic that consults for four-hour blocks and does procedures for the rest of the day. So you get a bit of a break from talking, stuff like that.
0: Or I pass out when I do surgery and I should just do the talking.
1: Yes, that's me <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So how did you not know that you passed that in surgery at until oh, years up to qualifying? Did you not I have do, the experience you, did. Did you do this Oh,
1: okay. <laughs> I thought I thought it was just because I was standing really still. I'm better when I'm doing surgery rather than when I'm assisting. But I yeah. um when I was a specialist nurse, um it must have been like my third or fourth day in this specialist clinic, I scrubbed into a spinal. and It was the first time I'd scrubbed in in this clinic i'd worked in general practice nursing before but the first time i scrubbed in, in this clinic and i'm holding the retractor and i just dropped <laughs> i dropped backwards not into the patient but they were the so short that they made me scrub in another three times before uh, i
0: called it <laughs> <laughs> i remember the student as a student um, scrubbing into surgery and you know, we had a very old school harsh surgeon lecturer and he, yeah. he looked at me uh, he looked at me going pale and he said, if you're going to faint, please faint backwards. No, it's no <laughs> empathy or <laughs> sympathy or anything. just like, please just don't fall under my <laughs> so, <okay. laughs> And And uh, when we prepared for this and I asked, what do you like to talk about and what do you think about our profession? You used the words, the sentence negativity bias and how it affects the resilience in the industry. Mm. Do you want to expand on that? What What is negativity bias? So negativity bias, the way I understand it is, our propensity as a species to focus on the negative things and ignore all the heaps and heaps of positive things. Is that accurate? And and if so, yeah, how does it apply in our profession by this you?
1: Um, I think when I wrote that email, I'd just been kind of battered by so many things, going, Oh, we can't get stuff, and we can't do this, and we can't do that, and it's so hard, and we're, you know, business is dropping. And I just had kind of been really um overwhelmed with this attitude of this is a terrible industry. So negativity bias, as I understand it, and it's certainly not my field, but is that, you know, once you hear or see something negative and a lot of the media, social media, LinkedIn, AVA press releases and things like that are very much, there's a staffing crisis, you know, quite dramatic wording, Uh, vet clinics closing, people sort of hearing about, you know, not being able to staff nursing shifts and having to close clinics early and the impact on revenue and things like that. But once you're in a mindset that that is the state of affairs in the industry, it's all you can see. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a couple of clinics that were saying, oh, we just can't find staff. It's a disaster. We're having to close at five. We're normally open till 7.30. And, you know, this is so bad for business. I said, oh gosh, where are you advertising? Oh, there's no point advertising because there's so many ads out there. And I was just like, really? You can't say you can't get staff if you're not even trying. You're literally just taking your ad down. So this sort of self, that negativity bias is just that self-perpetuating attitude within a group, which is only going to exacerbate the problem. But particularly, you know, the people that were complaining to me were the business owners. I want to just take a step back and as a, you know, I've just been a partner and, and running a practice for the last seven years. We're working in an economy-proof industry that's not replaceable by anything else. Their Vets will always exist. They're completely required in so many different areas. And we're surrounded by really good people. I and mean, Most of the people that get into veterinary science and stay in veterinary science are really purpose-driven people who are motivated to look after animals. And they're definitely out there, you just need to think outside the box and not put an ad on Kookaburra saying, nice clinic next to the coast, like put an ad on cookaburra that says, we give a shit about you and your animals, come here, you know, like just, I don't know. I think, I feel like people need to think outside the box and stop being so sort of defeated and, you know, mental illness in the industry and all of this stuff that it's just, it's feeding itself now, I feel like.
0: Yeah, they talk about the echo chamber, isn't it? Where you, mm. where you create an like, enclosed space, and we all say say the same thing, and it means you yeah. just hear the same things back being reflected back at you. And, yeah, and then especially because you, now you have social media on top of it, and we're also connected, mm-hmm. and it does become that almost the self-perpetuating thing or a self-fulfilling prophecy where
1: yes, yeah,
0: that despondency grows. I often think of a. I used to think of my my team uh, in terms of how how your mood and what you say and what you think influences other people I had this vision of a shift would start as a tin of white paint and nice and clean and nice and clear and then all it takes is one person with a drop of negativity just the discoloration and it mixes through that whole tin of paint and everything starts going gray and and blah and it's the same definitely for the profession as well. Look, yeah. it's challenging. I, I, I agree with you. And you know, I, I ran mm-hmm. a business and it was hard, but it was successful and I found ways to do it. But now I don't and things have changed. So I'm, I'm loathe to make to make comments and, and judgment that say, well, you'll we'll be able to do it. I don't own a clinic in this current environment. So I, I think mm-hmm. it is hard. But I agree. I think just focusing on all the negative things is not going to help anybody. What are the solutions? How do you get out of that? Have you got any insights on how to shift uh, from that mindset of, Oh, this is so bad for me to problem solving mode.
1: Oh gosh, that would solve a few problems, wouldn't it? If I had some solutions <laughs> <laughs> I think. well, I think a lot of it is the echo chamber and I think any organization that are an authority within the veterinary industry and, and I'm using the word organization loosely, but it, even the Australian veterinary network on Facebook, I think are very influential mm. and, I think any organisation that are a source of information need to be really responsible about how they're providing that information and, you know, journalists are quite bound by how they talk about mental ill health. In this, There's a lot of science behind the terminology you use, the way that you speak about it and the balance between kind of stories regarding recovery and positive outcomes having been through that process, which Facebook and, and less kind of structured organizations aren't using those same guidelines. Do you know what I'm referring yes. to when I say that? Have I worded? Yeah, that? Yeah,
0: yeah, 100%. I actually heard a thing on the um, Triple J the other day, on the, mm. what's the new, i on hack, where they talked about a phenomenon that psychologists are seeing where people are coming in saying, I think I have this condition. And then they'll say, why do you think that? And they'll say, well, I'm seeing all these um, TikTok videos of people talking about it and I have those symptoms. Yeah. And then they do a full assessment and they go, well, yeah, there are some of those things that align with what you do in your but no, you don't have the diagnosis. And the yeah. people are almost a bit upset. They're like, yeah, yes, I do, because I see it everywhere around. Me. And I do. I, yeah. that did make me wonder, I, do we do the same thing? Talk about burnout, 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 and we talk about it on the podcast, mm-hmm. but More to, more hopefully to clarify what exactly it is rather than to contribute to the echo chamber. Yeah. But burnout or compassion fatigue, and we all talk about it and talk about it, and then it's that same thing of, well, I feel like that sometimes. I must be burned down or I must be, name your.
1: Yes, yeah, and, and that's a negative thing. But actually sometimes I come home at the end of the day exhausted but quite satisfied from having been busy, I've learnt something, I've interacted with someone that was really rewarding and, you know, might have said I did a great job or something, you know. Being exhausted isn't necessarily a negative thing.
0: Yeah, I like that. it's it's a shift it's a you agree that and this is not always easy and sometimes i'm wary of trying to dress up genuine negative emotions and negative experiences with the silver lining just to trick yourself into keeping going but i feel like shifting from that negativity bias because that's your default because that's the way we Mm -hmm. are made to look for the problems to get out of that is a conscious effort of thinking okay but is that really true Ask the question: mm. Is what I'm feeling is that the truth, or is that a feeling? And if it's yeah. if it's not the truth, then what is the alternative? And and mm. I like that what you say. Sometimes when you're tired at the end of a long day, I know that um, when I did night shifts in my old business, and I did really long night shifts, and at the end of the shift, I'd be naked, and it would have been a rough night and dramas and client dramas, yeah. and you know, I'd feel that feeling of I'm so done and yes. making clients and blah blah. blah. I'd sit there. And then I would take five minutes before driving to go, okay, well, is that actually true? So I, especially that thought with ah, these clients, you know, these people, of are stupid, sick animals, I'm so sick of them. And then I'd go, mm. okay, in my head, who did I see last night? So 12 patients, let's go over the clients associated with those patients. Okay. There was the standout asshole who shouted at mm-hmm. me because he didn't have money. So that yeah. is coloring my mood, majorly shifting me. My negativity bias is triggered in a big way. And then yeah. I had, maybe six neutral people who were just there and they mm-hmm. were there They didn't complain They didn't sound fantastic cool. and then I had a handful of people who were great who were like yes whatever mm. you think thank you so much for helping us and then you go well that's like 90% positive or neutral and 10% negative why mm-hmm. was it focused on the negative and I think it works in so many other ways to go well I feel this blah. negativity isn't mm-hmm. the truth what's the other view on this does that make sense yeah. to you?
1: Yes completely and then I think it, at the end of that process I think the next step is why am I so overwhelmed by that? You know, I objectively looked at that and that is that was a small part of my night. Why is that so overwhelming? Why was my bucket already empty when I went into that conversation? And have I not had enough social time? Have I used up all my words for the night already? Or am I in a job that requires me to talk more than I have words available to me? And, you know, are you have you pro- given yourself enough sleep? Have you exercised? Are you eating well? You know, all of the other things that give you that ability to cope with the difficult parts. It's making sure that you've got that balance, I think, as well as start shifting your mindset and being a little bit more objective about those emotions.
0: That's excellent. And and on the same topic, and I'm going to steal Dorado's idea here, he did a talk about a something he's noticed when speaking to students and it, and it comes back to the negativity bias and how, when we focus on that, on how it influences other people almost as an infection, almost as a pandemic going through the veterinary community. He noticed yeah. when he does talks at universities, so students, and they talk about clients and he asks them, when I say client, what do you think? And the answer was overwhelmingly negative. The answers were negative. It was like pain in the ass, high maintenance. You know, really bad stuff. And and they were really scared almost of going out to the vet world and mm. speaking to clients, interacting with clients, and they've never even seen a client in their life before. There had yeah. no interactions. And this is from this negativity bias of, of, of all this negativity mm-hmm. in the profession where we winch about it, we post about it on social media, make little snarky comments and jokes. And, and then these poor youngsters coming into it, they, they're doomed to to have negative interactions with the clients Absolutely. because they're going into it with that mindset of, oh, well, this is going to be a confrontational thing rather than actually a potentially joy-giving thing.
1: And how often have you worked with people, with vets, as far as sort of role models kind of helping to change that attitude? How often have you worked with people who have come out of concerts going, oh, I love that client, they're so lovely. Every time they come in, they tell me how their nan's doing. And when you have interactions with those role models, how much does it lift you up and make you more excited to go into your next consult? Yeah. We,
0: I'm, trying to, I'm trying to answer your question how often I work to that. I do work with people <laughs> not like many that. People You're right, Elizabeth. Like cool. I, I try to be that and I definitely have colleagues mm. who are like that. We love it. We thrive on it. And it's, it is. It makes your day so much better.
1: Doesn't it? Yeah. I think I read a lot on resilience since having kids and what mm-hmm. it takes to build resilience and stuff like that. Have you read a book called The Resilience Project? no it's cool it's really good um but gratitude is practicing he calls them the gem principles gratitude empathy and mindfulness are the three sort of key ways of building resilience this is a great book i'm going to plug it big time yeah (laughs) he's a he's an ex-cricketer and the way he's pitched it is very digestible (laughs) for people of all walks of life and these sort of principles are so doable but it is that Focusing on the nice things the client said rather than the negative things means that you can retrain your brain to focus on those positive experiences or to see those positive experiences in your lived experiences that day. Um, Whereas if you are focusing on the negative, it's almost the opposite of Mm. the gratitude perspective. So particularly these kids that are coming out nervous about clients getting them focusing on five positive experiences they've had with clients at the end of every day as an employer might make a really big difference to their perspective and outlook on their job
0: what, what about empathy so gratitude empathy mindfulness mm. how how does empathy fit in that resilience project
1: as far as sort of res- resilience building i'm going to reference another book but it's a kid's book it's called buckets mm. and dippers and the concept yes,
0: my, my kids learned about buckets and are you, are you yes. are you, yeah yeah sorry Isn't go that lovely it.
1: Yeah, everybody has a bucket and you when you do nice things to other people, you fill their bucket but you also fill your own and then some people have dippers as well and they will dip into your bucket and take away some of your happiness. And this concept of filling other people's bucket also fills your own is, is essentially what the empathy component of this resilience project is, is doing sort of random acts of kindness, seeing things from other people's perspective and doing things that will improve their day will also improve your day.
0: I'm going to ask you, I to tell you a, a, a thought process that I'm going through. Yeah. So, empathy in our profession. Uh, I years ago, actually, I wrote, I, I used to have a little blog, and I wrote a blog about mm-hmm. the importance of empathy for vets and how important it is for me, really, to have mm-hmm. empathy for my clients and my coworkers. And then I read a book recently by a psychologist. He's a big shot in one of the big uh, um, Yale or one of those sort of universities. And he wrote a book called Against Empathy against the empathy
1: against empathy and he
0: doesn't uh, uh, yeah and the neurology behind it he says if we clear on the definition of empathy empathy is feeling the emotions of others Mm -hmm. it's not just understanding or putting yourself in their shoes or something like that it's literally feeling the emotions of others versus compassion which is a um i can see what you're going through i understand you've got your dog just run over you're upset about the lack of money I can understand what you're going through and that drives me to want to act, which is a positive thing. And according to the book and according to research, those are two distinct emotions on a brain level basis. So literally when we, when people experience empathy and they do, if FM, MRI scans, if you're in pain and they scan your brain and I'm a highly empathetic person and they scan my brain while I'm watching you in pain, the same areas are lighting up. So I mm-hmm. am, experiencing a negative emotion whereas if you're experiencing pain and i'm compassionate different areas light up you know i want to act to help you but i'm not in pain and which has made me really think about our profession because we don't we a lot of people are very empathetic and i think empathetic whether it's Mm. towards our patients or towards the the clients we deal with where we feel their pain and Mm. i have this this uh working theory that i still want to speak to somebody to help me get clarity on it as to is that a bad thing? Should we try to move away from being so bloody pathetic? Like is, is compassion fatigue a thing? Is it actually empathy fatigue? Is, is it a way to go? Well, let's let's not feel somebody's pain. Let's actually try and understand it and then try and help and make it better. I don't know. Is that does any of thing in that resonate with you or make sense? Or
1: I, yeah, absolutely. But I actually thought the definitions of compassion and empathy were the wrong the other way around
0: so the, yeah. the book differentiates two kinds of empathy it is um effective empathy and cognitive empathy so cognitive empathy is more the i can understand whereas effective empathy is yeah. i feel, feel I again the, book, the, the introduction to the book guys look we can debate terminology yeah but according to the author's definition empathy is i feel what you feel and it actually hurts. Yeah. And, and they do talk about medical professions where it can be most debilitating if you're so yeah. empathetic that you actually, a, I'm a mess because you're a mess, and I can't do anything about it.
1: But this really does resonate with me, and I'm, and I'm so interested in what it is that's exhausting. Because, like I've said, everybody gets into vet because they love animals and they love the human-animal bond, or some variation of on that spectrum. So we're definitely feeling people. Typically, a paper I read recently was looking at exactly that sort of compassion fatigue versus burnout. And one of the biggest predictors of developing fatigue, because people can be empathetic and it fills their bucket, or you can be empathetic and it empties your bucket. What's the difference? And the the difference they found in healthcare systems was when people are working in a system that they can't change, they can't do anything about it, that you end up developing that fatigue. So particularly in human healthcare, you know, there's so many barriers to making change. Everything's so strictly sort of scripted and you know the diagnostic tests you're allowed to do and the funding you've got access to and all of that stuff is so unchangeable and and that's one of the contributing factors to why nurses and doctors burn out and it made me think what can we change in the veterinary industry that gives people more autonomy and control over their systems so that they can experience less of that that burnout or fatigue sensation
0: yeah it's a is that what they talk about, moral fatigue, where that almost leads to a moral? Where I know what I can do or should do or want to do, but I can't because of the system around me. I yes. think for us, that's yeah. particularly poignant with the money situation.
1: The money every situation, you, exactly. Yeah.
0: Every time you don't treat an animal because of a money mm-hmm. situation, that's mm. that really hurts and that that takes it out of you. And you can you can Absolutely. learn to dissociate it, but it's it's still hurts. Twenty years in, that's and think, still one of my worst scenarios.
1: I think that's probably a good example of the sort of knowing yourself side of things and where you fit in the veterinary industry. I, When I was doing emergency work, I really struggled with that, with people not having money to do what I wanted to do, whereas as a specialist people get to you knowing that you're going to be expensive and they're prepared, and I have a lot less of that, I guess, emotional drain because I'm not dealing with that sort of moral fatigue of the the financial barriers
0: it's a it's an issue for me i had a very yeah. um, <laughs> fun interaction with a guy the other day who um, and maybe it's a good discussion to have but i don't want it to sound like a like a show of conversation but i can i can talk about how again how i played mental games with myself to to make a situation much better and much less morally draining for myself a, mm-hmm. a guy who came in and I mean, actually, he'd already been in the night before. Just dogfight wounds. So it wasn't life and death. It wasn't major, major stuff. But a pretty nasty like dog bite wound. And he'd come in the night before with no money. And he had free pain control and a jam of an antibiotic. And he was told to go to, um, you know, there's a charity nearby that's going to help. And then he came back again. But 12 hours later, and saw me on ship. The other yucky. And it's it's not, again, dog's fine. It's not, it's not a life-threatening emergency. It'll probably be fine in the long run anyway. But he was quite drunk. And the note said he was quite drunk the night before. Oh, so immediately yeah. my heckles are up. He came in with, with the two neighbors of his who were sober and quite nice. They were there to help him. And he was quite, he was like, well, you got to do something. Her guts are hanging out. And the guts are
1: hanging
0: not Nothing dramatic, but he was getting quite confrontational. I was trying to be nice and trying to be nice. And I examined her and I said, look, wait, this is what needs to be done. Ideally, I was like, to knock her out and do the whole wound clean. But at a minimum, we need antibiotics. We need a clean wound antibiotics. Yeah, long story. I won't go into all of the details, but when I sat down with him, he started getting really agitated. He was like, and I gave him a really bare bones estimate for if we're going to do what I want to do. And so I kept it really quite cheap, and I gave him the numbers. Like, how the classic? How much? You guys are unethical. And can't he <laughs> just, And he did the whole. He did the whole thing, trying yeah. to guilt me and how, why can't we just this? And I could feel the rage building up inside me. And that comes to that mindfulness that's part of the the, yeah. uh, the resilience project, right? As I, I recognize that I'm getting furious. And we're about to start it's shouting at this guy or telling him to <laughs> get off to something because I actually I actually we, I found expired meds and stuff. And I said that we can give this for free. So I try to find a solution, but he was being a knob about it. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the key thing is recognizing I'm getting so angry, I'm going to shout at him. And then I switched to well, empathy or compassion. I thought, hang on a minute, let me think about it. And I, I what? thought about this guy that he is he's drunk in the middle of the day. He was drunk last night. So he clearly has an issue. It's clearly major, major problems in his life. He's being a complete <laughs> asshole. But there's probably a background story for it. Mm-hmm. And just recognizing that and just trying to see that perspective, I, I could literally feel my blood draining out of my face and getting a little bit calmer. It had been a long, long, nice discussion. I told him he was an asshole, and he actually really liked that. <laughs> I said to him, Look, mate, I understand where you're coming from, and it's a lot of money. I talked through it. I said, But you being an asshole. Because when you say that to me, that really hurts me as a as a person, as a veterinarian. I said, There's not a single vet who doesn't want to help you. I said, So you being an asshole and he actually and then he laughed and said, Yeah, I'm being about That's okay, but this point." <laughs> we <laughs> actually were friends at the end. But I don't know. I don't know if there's yeah. a less it was just that perspective shift. Yeah. That that in itself took that because otherwise I would have left that day in a few. I would have left and gone home and and sulked about it for a day. Yeah. But that took away the, the edge from that. Just like I mean, it's interesting. It took me it only took just took me twenty years to get to this point.
1: Only better? I can't believe your kids haven't taught you that before. <laughs>
0: Yeah, they are. That's probably the main one of the main drivers yep. <laughs> for me to be able to get it's in the last last five years, five ten years that I've had kids. they don't know yep. able to do this.
1: <laughs> we we call it the parental pause. The, just don't yes. react. Just take a breath. <laughs> if
0: it wasn't for the parental pause, it'd be a lot more murdered children, right?
1: A lot more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anna,
0: sorry, back to you. <laughs> the other thing that you said in your email that I really interested me you said that I love teaching but I hate bureaucracy please expand what what does bureaucracy look like in veteran science for you
1: to me it's making a process that should be simple complicated for the sake of being complicated so unnecessary paperwork and unnecessary sort of like as an example I run a very small, so there's four employees and myself, mobile medical consultancy business, and we go into 35 vet clinics. To meet our workplace health and safety requirements, I have to document the fire escape exit Mm -hmm. plan for every single one of the 35 clinics we go into. So I'm not fulfilling my requirements as an employer if I don't do that. But if I ask the clinics to provide that information, they're going to look at me like I'm mad. They're busy. Why the hell are you asking us for this information? So the the connection between sort of teaching and bureaucracy for me is I guess I had that sort of sliding doors. Do I go? I really, really like teaching and I really like teaching students, but do I go into a university setting where I can do that full time and, you know, combination of lecturing tutorials, in-clinic training. Or do I stay in private practice and just work out a way to continue being able to teach in that setting? And the big turnoff for me in academia was how many hoops you have to jump through to do anything and, you know, setting out your learning objectives and all that sort of documentation stuff, which it's completely necessary. And I, I strongly believe that the veterinary industry needs more governance and compliance in the small businesses, but i am um, it's not in my in my DNA to be that person.
0: <laughs> yes. I, I, okay I often think about this sort of stuff. I, I have friends who work in you know mining or engineering or things like that. And I look
1: oh,
0: at it, yeah. the red tape and the bureaucracy and I just go, oh <sighs> i'm so glad that, that we don't have too many people who police us. We get police to check, but it's a lot of it is up to well, you're intelligent people, don't do dumb things, please.
1: Don't do dumb things, we say, <laughs> yeah. Don't do dumb stuff. D D D S at home.
0: <laughs> at home is that one of your your home? Yeah,
1: ones? yeah. Just just don't do dumb stuff. <laughs> I
0: don't think that's. But it's yeah, it's not problem. that simple. It's not that simple, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> okay, well let's, let's shift from the negativity stuff and get positive. What are you excited about in the vet world in 2022? What are you seeing that you think is great and you think that's going to get even better in the next few years?
1: I'm interested in the impact. I'm not sure whether this is actually sort of happening yet, but I'm excited to see small business owners getting some more leadership training and being more responsible employers, starting to seek out kind of benchmarks for salaries and starting to pay a bit more attention to culture as we get more data on the positive impact it has on business performance and I guess sort of the business side of, the veterinary industry kind of progressing. And I think from a kind of clinical side, um, more people, you know, I do so many ultrasounds as part of my job, more people getting comfortable doing ultrasounds and the opportunities that that provides our patients and clinicians to keep on learning. It's such a nice thing to sort of like, yes, I found the adrenal, you know, there's just really objective. I'm improving in this. And it's nice to see people getting excited about learning again how about you
0: yeah. what about me yeah, yeah. I, i've said it before i often think because i do the podcast and i speak to all these incredibly motivated driven people and leaders and practice owners who do things right i, I feel like i maybe live in a bit of a bubble Where the and i also the company i work with very progressive and very the, the clinical shifts i do quite is they very much yeah. team focused and wellness focused and trying but nobody's perfect but i feel like there's a lot of momentum in the right direction so i i feel like it's great it's heaps it better i've been in it for 20 years yeah. and things are just constantly getting better and better and better but then i have conversations mm-hmm. sometimes with vets that are you know employed vets in different parts of the world and and it's certainly still not fixed like there's certainly right. still a lot of the same old stuff out there that i experienced 20 years ago but I, I'm generally optimistic. I generally feel like it is becoming a, a better and better profession to work in. Mm. And for the reasons that you mentioned, we are growing up as a profession. It's no longer one dude who can do whatever he wants with his team and, and not give a shit about their work, personal well-being. There's a lot of stuff mm. that's you know, heading in the right direction. Mm. And then, yeah, the ongoing learning, that's been a big shift for me because I, I did get blase about my knowledge sort of 10 to 15 years in. Mm. I went, mean, nah, I've yeah. been in it long enough, Fine. I know what I'm doing. And yeah. then I kind of stopped enjoying the work mm. and not stopped enjoying it. But it becomes less enjoyable when you're stuck in those ruts. And then through yeah. doing the clinical podcast, just the ongoing learning, just, just realizing, wow, there's a lot that I didn't know. And it's actually, rather than being a chore, it's actually really fun learning new stuff. Yeah. And it makes those shifts just so much more fun if you, well, if you know your shit, right, if you feel competent and confident, work's just so much more fun because you are staying mm-hmm. up to date and you, you don't have this thing in the back of your head going, well, we're probably about 10 years behind on what's new in this yeah, world. I've yeah. never, never quite fully understood this disease, but we'll just sort of do the basics and yeah. pass it off to somebody else. So, yeah.
1: yeah. So I'm going to add to my answer, actually. Um, yeah. I'm really excited to have technicians coming through Yeah, nursing pool. Yeah. I think there's, there's always in this, in Australia, vets are always doing a little bit of nursing. And Mm -hmm. nurses are requiring a fair bit of training on the job and there's not that many clinics that can provide that really. And I'm excited to have people kind of spanning that gap so that vets can continue to learn and bring the techs with them. You can bring the nurses with them and we can all kind of start moving on. And I think as we as employers, we get more pressure to pay people appropriately as vets, as professionals, we can then say to vets, okay, then I don't want you doing this. You need to train this person to do this so that you can then be a vet all the time rather than holding for a catheter be placed and, and things like that. So I think the whole industry has got more opportunities to move forwards if we've got better trained people moving through behind us.
0: Absolutely. There's a, a small part of me <laughs> is resistant for selfish reasons because a lot of those things that you do, and again, after 10 years, it becomes more mundane. But it's kind of yes. fun to do some of those things. And, yeah. and a little part of me doesn't want to give it away. This is where it <laughs> okay, well, I go, well, so what am I going to do? If you're doing do all the fun stuff, I'll do surgery and then I'll just do all the thinking and I'll sit at the computer. Because I do. Again, when I work, this nurses are highly skilled. So we don't put yeah. IV catheters in yeah. There's a lot of stuff that we don't do. We just write it on a list and it gets done. And then I spend yeah. a lot of my shift at the computer making decisions and making phone calls. I'm like, I don't want to do an admin job. I'm going to work with my hands. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's what i that's what i think we should be training our nurses in client calls consultations Ooh. and then you can learn to do endoscopy or surgery or another hands-on yeah, yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> all right And you know, i think we have to stop well hang on one question i want to do a shout out for this i saw when i when i um looked into what you do you talk about how much you like teaching but how you don't mm-hmm. like teaching in the traditional environment yeah so How are you teaching at the moment? How are you scratching that edge?
1: Uh, I've got a couple of different things going on at the moment. The first one, I'm running a three-month program for vets to join me one day a week and come on the road with me and come to the clinics. And the focus, the people who have been most interested are people that really want to improve their ultrasound skills. And because I'm medicine, not radiology, my focus is very much on interpretation. So if they want to improve their technical skills, I'm sort of, I guess, training people to be tech, ultrasound technicians and yeah. then, you know, I'm still there to do the interpretation and make recommendations on the cases, but it means that those vets are improving their skills and I can chat to the the vets about the case while they're doing the ultrasound. So that's yes. one. That's
0: such a cool opportunity.
1: It's cool. That it's really, really fun. Yeah. Because
0: I, I I did the ultrasound thing in the, initially way back when I did courses and I did quite an extensive course at the university. So I had yeah. all the knowledge and, and potentially skill, but then I lacked the, for a long time, lacked the confidence to actually utilize it because I would have that yeah. thing of like, well, is what I'm seeing what I think it is? And actually it's hanging out with somebody. Means. Yeah, hanging out with somebody who knows, you can say, yep, that is it. That is, no, that is too big. No, that shouldn't look yeah. like that.
1: It's, yes, oh, exactly. Really useful. Yeah. Wow. And I think it's, yeah. it's an exciting time in ultrasound because in, you know, in the human world, sonographers do ultrasound. It's not radiologists radiologists interpret the images in the us a lot of the um, specialist hospitals are using technicians they've trained as sonographers to do the ultrasounds and then the radiologists are interpreting them and as we sort of get tight you know everyone's busy the staff shortages everywhere everyone's kind of really thinking about okay well, what do i really need to do and what can i train other people to do and i think this is definitely a direction we're going to go into in australia first gps doing ultrasounds but radiologists interpreting them like if you were sending off a radiograph. So vets are more confident to have a go at doing an ultrasound, knowing that they don't have to be able to interpret everything they see. They just know which mm. pickies to get and they can send them off. And then the other, the other thing I'm doing teaching wise is, again, focused around ultrasound, but um, doing workshops in clinics to train clinics on their equipment and know the limitations of their equipment, know the cap- capabilities of their equipment, how to adjust it and things to get the most out of it and Train them to do sort of emergency point of care ultrasound and a full abdo scan using those sort of. There's a consensus statement on the way out, which mm-hmm. says what images and videos to get for somebody else to be able to interpret your scan. So training people to get those pictures essentially. That's very so useful.
0: And then you do, you run like these online. Um, one of the well, how oh, would yeah. you describe it? Do you do you do the sessions <laughs> exactly. that you do? <laughs> yeah,
1: I do that too. <laughs> um, forget about that. <laughs> Um, so we we're just working our way through the Edinger textbook book of veterinary internal medicine. Just sort of casually working right.
0: through Edinger, are you?
1: Just yeah. <laughs> it's our <laughs> second round through. <laughs> so it's sort of pitched at people who are kind of membership level knowledge or interested in city memberships. And mm-hmm. it started because I was training residents and interns, and we wanted to do some sort of formal you know, have structure and just work through tutorials once a fortnight. And we opened it up to membership candidates just through the college and then um, I've got a sort of sign-up sheet on my website. So if anybody's interested in coming, they can put their email in and we send out a link to the tutorial and the subject that we'll be talking about once a fortnight and then people can join. It's 8 a.m. Sydney time on a Friday morning, every other Friday. But you can go to
0: Where do they find you?
1: The website is... Vetsnorth.com.au. Uh,
0: right. Standard question time. Do you listen to podcasts?
1: <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah.
0: And favorites? What what should I put on my listen list?
1: I listen to a lot of different stuff. The best one I've listened to recently was a trauma surgeon who was interviewed, I think it was on Conversations, ABC Radio. He was a trauma surgeon who was one of the first responders at the Bali bombing. And it was a really interesting conversation. But my go-to, regular go-to is Simon Sinek. Yeah, he does a podcast called A Little Bit of Optimism, yeah. and they're really interesting guests. I don't. Do you have you listened to that one?
0: I am a fan of Simon yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna. I will, I'll send. i give you a Simon episode that you should listen to on another podcast. Um, yes. Yeah. Diary of a CEO is the podcast yeah. name. I forget the yeah. the guy who runs it. And then there's an mm-hmm. episode probably about a month or two back where he interviews. Sign awesome gold. A lot of really, really good insights. We're very specifically for we could all listen to it about resilience and the way that the work culture is shifting and how a lot of young people are shooting themselves in the foot actually with some attitudes. So pretty cool. Have a listen.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I mean
0: Righto. Now the big question. There's a couple of last ones. Should we do the new one first? Should we do the pass it on? still trying to find a a nice nifty name for this one where (laughs) a previous guest asks a question that I should ask Mm -hmm. you and then Mm -hmm. you're going to have to give me a question that I'm going to ask my next guest so let's start Mm -hmm. with a question from the previous guest now asked if you're a new grad but you knew the things that you know now how would your career have looked different
1: it's a good question but you know there's a few things that I probably put up with that I shouldn't have put up with And in hindsight, knowing what I know, I would have said, actually, that's illegal or no, actually, you can't change, you know, we can't do that because of this. But actually probably being a little bit more casual and things provided more opportunities. So I think my career probably would have been a little bit more limited if I was, you know, I talked about boundaries. It's really important to have boundaries. But if I was too solid on those, I would have missed opportunities. So my career would have looked quite different. That's interesting. So, I'm not sure that I'd actually change.
0: So, you wouldn't consciously change the journey That's that you
1: had? No, it's been fun.
0: That's excellent. That's a <laughs> so, what's your question for our next guest?
1: I'm really interested in if the veterinary industry didn't exist, what job would you do? Mm-hmm.
0: You know, what happens every time people ask this question, and then I, I want to ask it of the person who's <laughs> 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 yeah. I want to ask it, but I won't. I'll resist. I won't. I'll leave it okay. to the next question. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, now i need to sort of keep track and see who's next and make sure I find out what the answer was.
0: I'll let you know. Okay. And then the very last one, if you are at a conference or online event or something, then mm-hmm. it has all of the veteran new grads of the world all together. And you have a few minutes to give them just one little bit of advice. What is Anna Dangate's advice?
1: I think learn about yourself. Make sure you know yourself and keep tabs on yourself as you grow and change and different influences, different priorities in your life. I've, I have a habit every six months I do a personal strategic weekend and I take myself to a hotel for a night and I sit down and work out my, what my priorities are, what key relationships I need to maintain and what review whether I'm doing a good job on them, both professionally, personally, um, what I believe in, what my values are and just make sure that I'm staying kind of on track. And I think everybody should do that from very early on in their life. If you
0: really like that. That's very, very, very wise because it's very easy to have delivered to what they call an unexamined life right? where you just, mm. life happens to you and you kind of just go with flow and yeah. before you know it, it's a decade and you got, oh shit, what's, where's that time? Um, gone? When do yeah. you do this and do you have a, a specific uh, like agenda <laughs> an agenda an outline a thing that you, just, you do the same process every time do tick boxes yeah. and then look back at yeah
1: yeah pretty much and there's there's sort of circumstances obviously that need special attention so there might be sort of special points to raise on the agenda but it's always what do I believe in how have those beliefs evolved what are my values are my priorities consistent and the the direction that I'm Kind of heading at the moment, aligned with those values, and what relationships do I need to make sure? You know, where have I dropped the ball, and how am I going to ensure that my social support network is aligned with my values as well?
0: And then, do you have so that's six monthly? Do you have little check-ins in between the six months to check that you're on track, or do you stick to the six monthly? And then, like, um, what, what is it in between? Do you refer back to your list on a weekly basis, or is it just the a- Six months, not
1: not regularly, but Mm -hmm. usually when I'm making decisions. So if I've got a big decision to make, I sort of go back and say, okay, well this is this is my why essentially, Mm -hmm. and this decision I'm thinking about doing this is that aligned with what I've documented here as my why? And if not, then what do I do? I need to review the decision, or do I need to review these sort of core values that I've had for a very long time? It's probably very cool.
0: Really, really cool. I'm just so so impressed that you can have a night away from kids in a hotel and not just get drunk and watch Netflix. That's <laughs> the biggest achievement.
1: That's the reward after I've got such <laughs> my okay. way to the agenda. <laughs> okay.
0: You're like a five-minute tip, 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 everything's good, bad is good, everything's good. Yep. good, what's up, Netflix? <laughs> <laughs>
1: We've got to have a 2 p.m. check-in so that by 5 p.m. I'm done.
0: <laughs> okay, sweet. I that was so lovely to chat to you. Thank you for, <laughs> for your time. I, I love it. I love the, the insights. Was um, there anything else that we missed out on that you'd like to mention or have you had, you got it off your chest?
1: No. Oh, no. I could talk for hours. This was lovely. Thanks.
0: Before you run away, I want to finish up with a quick story from this very morning. But so this morning I had my morning shift at the emergency hospital where I work. And this morning I had a case of a bleeding abdomen came in literally bleeding to death. And not that long ago, we did an episode, actually last year sometime, we did an episode about treating animals bleeding internally with autotransfusions, something I knew about but never tried because I wasn't sure how and what and who is it the best for. And I remembered the discussion that we had with Dr. Rob Webster on the ECC podcast on auto transfusions. pulled up my show notes, got all the facts about it, and proceeded to take about a liter of blood out of this dog's abdomen and putting it back in its vein and saved its life. So that's one story. But every week I'm getting more and more people telling me how the podcasts influenced specific cases in their everyday working life, how it made them treat their patients better, how it made them feel better about their working life, how it made them feel more confident and do better work, which makes me really, really happy. But it also makes me really sad because we have about a 1,000 people subscribed to the clinical podcast now, which means there's a 1,000 vets who are better at their jobs, but it means that there's probably about 80 to 100,000 other vets who are not listening to our podcast, who are not getting the benefit of this stuff that our amazing specialist guests are teaching me and teaching everybody who listens. So please make me happy. Please don't miss out. Check out the clinical podcasts at vvn.supercast.com. Beyond the podcast, we also back these up with fantastic clinical show notes, which are all the highlights, all the practical tips that you need to remember when you get that bleeding patient. Early in the morning, one year after you listen to the podcast, you can go back and look for those. We've now put these on a very cool network that is completely searchable. So this morning I went into the app and I went to the search bar and said auto transfusion and it popped up with four episodes where we've discussed auto transfusions with the associated notes. So I can quickly scroll find what I'm looking for and jump in and get the work done. Go and check it out first two weeks for free at
1: vvn.supercast.com.